right, everyone. Well, it's, it's good to be here tonight. And um, as uh, Steve said a moment ago, my name is Travis McNeely. I'm the student and college pastor at Woodlawn Baptist Church. So I work with our junior high all the way through our college students and their families. And I just want to thank Steve for the opportunity to be here to preach tonight and uh, the partnership that we have with the BCM, uh, doing things like mission trips and the ski trip and, and uh, so many great memories here so far. I learned how to ski because of Steve Masters. I like to say that every time because now I love to ski. So thank you, Steve, for that. Uh, but uh, it's such a joy uh, to be here. And even, I just want to share this, but just a moment ago, Steve just pulled me aside and said that uh, a man trusted Christ at the international dinner tonight, uh, afterwards, after the dinner. And so if you don't come to the international dinner, student, I know there was some of y'all here, but some of y'all were not able to be here, maybe because of class. But if you can be here, it's such a great opportunity to get to know people from all around the world. So I want to encourage you to be there for that. So, all right, well now tonight, we're going to be in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, so if you're not familiar with the New Testament, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. So Acts chapter 5, and I've been given the task of covering quite a number of verses. Acts chapter 5, verse 17 to 42, but I promise I will do my best to go speedily and faithfully to the text. Okay, So to give you some context to the passage before we dive right in, um, the apostles have had this ministry in Jerusalem. They were told by Jesus to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, this is the part that he, they're faithfully exercising in Jerusalem. And now that they've had such an impact on those around there from Acts 2 and 3, if you follow the, the text there, um, the scripture says that because of their ministry, more and more believed in the Lord Jesus and more were added to their number. And so this text details that we're covering tonight the second time that the apostles had been arrested for sharing the gospel, and then their release, and then proclamation of the gospel further. So what I believe the main idea for this text for its original audience, so for the New Testament church in the first century, the original audience, I think that the main idea could be summarized this way, that for those who take notes, it's God protects his servants in order to advance the word throughout the world. God protects his servants in order to advance the word throughout the world. So whenever you're preaching a narrative or walking through a narrative, it's helpful to structure that based off of the scenes. And I think there's three major scenes in this text that we're going to cover. So let's walk through scene one. If you're watching the movie and you want to imagine it with me, you're in Jerusalem in the first century. And you see here in scene number one, starting in verse 17, the apostles are arrested. Look down at your Bible with me. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up. And all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Now, um, now we get right here in the beginning, these religious leaders, they were very frustrated. And why were they frustrated? Well, the church, it was really clear, more and more every day were being added to their number. They were envious of the apostles and their ministry, especially because, well, they tried to destroy Jesus. And no matter what they did, it seemed like this message about Christ, the Messiah, was continuing to spread no matter what they did as religious leaders. And they were jealous. They were envious, as the text clearly lays out. And so what did they do in response to being filled with jealousy and envy? Well, verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So they're arrested. But once again, this is the second time they were delivered from prison. Divine intervention took place. And God got them out of prison an angel, through an angel, an angel of the Lord. And this angel, what it, 
angel is, by the way, if you don't know what that is. Uh, There's an angelic being, of course, a spiritual being. But in particular, the role of an angel is to send a message. That, literally, the Greek word, we use it in other ways. Angelos, it's, used, it's angel. It just meant a messenger. So if a king wanted to send a message to someone, they would send it through an angelos, a messenger. And so this is God's messenger, though, a spiritual messenger. And he came and not only delivered them from prison, but gave them a command straight from God. And this command was that they would go stand in the temple and speak. And what do you notice about the disciples? This is, these are different disciples than what we saw in the New Testament early on in the Gospels, where they would sometimes doubt what Jesus said. They wouldn't do exactly what Jesus said. They were amazed by what he said. But here, these apostles and disciples are filled with boldness. And what they do is when they hear God's word, they go and do what it says right away. So notice here, they go and they stand, and he's, they're commanded to go to speak to all the people the words of this life. And what do they do? At daybreak, that's the first thing to do. At daybreak. So they wake up in the morning, sun's coming up. All right, hey guys, let's go to the temple. And they start proclaiming the gospel. They're faithful. They do exactly what God has commanded them to do. But notice even this text. It says, the words of this life. Maybe in some of your Bibles, if you're looking down at your Bible, the L is capitalized, right? The L is capitalized. And they're doing that. Why? Because this is a descriptive term to essentially describe what the gospel is. He could have said something else, but he used something in particular. He said the words of this life. And it's this life-giving message. And now, you'll see this all throughout Scripture, even especially the Gospel of John. You know, one that you maybe even see at an LSU game, someone holding up a sign. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then John uh, 6, which we covered tonight at the international dinner, says, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And you continue going through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And what is eternal life? Well, John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life. So here's your definition. Isn't that great? It's like Webster in the Bible right there. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that you know the Father and his Son whom he has sent. That's eternal life. Knowing God is eternal life. Eternal life. And so now he's saying, go share this message of life. Eternal life. It's knowing God. Go share this message out to all the world. And what we learn from even verses 21 here to 24, uh, we're going to learn how these human plans, they cannot thwart God's divine plans. Continue with me in 21b, right there it says, Now, uh, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Now, we as readers already know they're gone, but they don't know that. Verse 22, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard this, heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So we see really clearly in this passage that nothing that man tries to do to thwart God's plan could ever overcome. God had a plan for them to continue to proclaim the gospel and through divine intervention even got them to do that. God sovereignly provided that. He did this. And Notice with these apostles, 
they're out there, they're preaching, and the officers still come to them, but they don't oppose the guards, the, the authorities, they don't oppose them in this sense of violent resistance. They actually do what the guards say. Notice, notice how the captain of the officers brought him. It, it wasn't by force. Why? Well, they were afraid the people might stone them. So the apostles had so much influence among the crowds. People were listening to what they had to say as they proclaimed the words of this life. And actually, even if we go back uh, to chapter 4, if you look at verse 18 to 20 of chapter 4, just a page over in your Bible, it's a page over in mine. Now, they had been charged before. Look at the charge that was given to them. Verse 18 of chapter 4. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you uh, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They were, they're just sharing what they, what they saw, what they were eyewitnesses of. You know, maybe for you, you've witnessed some uh, incredibly crazy event in your life. And you can say, hey, I saw that. I was a witness to that. One time, I, I used to work in the restaurant industry uh, for about five or six years, and I worked at a fine dining restaurant in Fort Worth called Eddie V's Prime Seafood. And while I worked there, I ran into a lot of interesting characters. One guy, his name was Max. Now, Max, um, I tried talking to him many times about the gospel. He was an atheist. And uh, one day, um, we're just folding napkins. I'm like, you know, I'm just going to be bold with this guy. I said, hey, Max. I said, what's up, Travis? I said, hey, you and I have never talked about God, but you know they all call me preacher boy around here because I'm in seminary. So let's have that talk. What do you think about God? He says, well, I don't think God exists. And so we went through a conversation. I talked about different apologetic arguments with him, this defense for the faith type arguments. And uh, I started to talk about 1 Corinthians 15, where it says uh, that the, the, the gospel had been handed down to the disciples. And if you don't know anything about 1 Corinthians 15, it was written around 20 years after the resurrection. And so he said, he said there's no way they could have witnessed that. I said, okay, all right, well, um, give me an event from your life. 20 years ago that you'll never forget. You know what he said to me? It's the day I killed somebody. I said, okay, all right, have a nice day. You know? <laughs> no, um, I didn't say that. But I was like, wow, that's kind of freaky that he's standing right in front of me. I'm wondering why he's not in prison. And um, so he tells me, though, that he uh, was in college, and he was drinking and driving, and he ran a stop sign and killed someone, and was in prison for 10 years for that. And um, really tragic story. He said, that's a day I'll never forget. I never thought using that illustration about 1 Corinthians would ever bring about that kind of story. But what a powerful opportunity because he experienced something horrific, the death of someone at his own hands. And you know what? When the book of 1 Corinthians was written and they're saying, this is 20 years ago, we were eyewitnesses of this. Think about it. They saw their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, crucified. One of the most horrific ways you could ever die one of the most horrific ways to die. They were witnesses of it. And not only that, they were witnesses of his resurrection. And they were totally unashamed and bold to proclaim what they saw, what they heard, what they touched. They saw Christ. They heard Christ for 40 days after his resurrection. They couldn't help but attest to the reality and truth of that. And so we look at what that chapter. He says, we can't help to share what we've seen and heard. It had a weight to it because they were there. They were witnesses of it. They couldn't forget something so amazing. And now in chapter 5, they're brought before the high priest. They're brought before them. And look at how they respond. Let's look at verse 27 in chapter 5. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. 
and the high priest questioned them. Now, this council is a religious council, but in some sense, it is also a legal council, a civil council. So they could press charges to them. They already locked them up in prison, right? So they have a type of civil authority as well. You could say a lesser magistrate to the Roman authorities that were over them. Okay? So now notice what they say in verse 28. After being questioned, saying, We strictly charged you to not teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they were, they were not saying, they're not merely saying, look, we just said, hey, bud, can you not talk about Jesus? They weren't doing that, right? They threw him in prison twice now, and they still couldn't thwart him. They charged him legally, saying, you cannot do this. And what did they do? They still did it. They, listen to this. This is, what, this is what's called civil disobedience. They were civil about it. They were respectful. Notice they didn't go against the guard coming, bringing him to the high priest. But they could not go against their conscience. They could not go against God. Who, had, who is a higher authority over them. See, all authority, we're going to talk about this in a minute, all authority is delegated and given by God. All authority in the world. And these high priests did not like what God had given these apostles. Notice, they said, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. They're fulfilling Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit said to what? Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other uttermost parts of the earth. So they're doing a good job, right? They're obeying the king. Now, they filled Jerusalem with their teaching, and he says, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And that's, that's the truth, yes. Yes, and we can kind of say maybe in a double entendre type way, right? We hope the blood of Christ would be applied to these Pharisees' lives that they trust in Christ, right? That'd be great. But also, they were the ones legally guilty in that they shouted to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus was crucified because of them because of them, but ultimately because of God's sovereign plan. So, so notice what Peter says in response. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. And we'll keep reading that in just a moment. But I just want to say a couple things about this. Uh, one commentator said this, and as it regards to civil disobedience here, he said, Christians should generally submit themselves to governing authorities, showing proper respect and cooperation, which we see clearly in this text. They didn't resist the guards. Uh, recognizing that political leaders and institutions have been established by God for the good order of society. Some passages for that, Romans 13, 1 to 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. At the same time, they cannot deny their fundamental calling, the church cannot deny their fundamental calling as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession to declare the praises of the one who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Out of 1 Peter 2.9. When that opportunity is denied or thwarted by governments, a terrible clash of loyalties arises. Imprisonment and death are sometimes the lot of those who, in imitation of the apostles, cannot keep silent about God and the gospel. There have been people all around the world all around the world, in countries where you're not allowed to speak the name of Christ, people who were killed for their faith because they could not help but speak what God had done in their life. And the apostles are before this court. We must obey God rather than men. What is, it, what is it here that's a matter of obedience? Jesus said go, so we go no matter what. We go to our neighbor. We go through, as if we're trying to copy the apostles here, 
immediate space, Jerusalem, and then further from that, Judea, further from that, Samaria, further from that, the ends of the earth. See, God is Lord over all. And so we must take his gospel everywhere. That's why it's important to do missions. College students, listen, if you have not been on a mission trip yet, I want to tell you, sign up this December, this spring, this summer, get yourself on the mission field now while you can. I want to encourage you, if you've never been on a mission trip, it'll change your life. If you let God work in your life and you go on a mission trip, it can be life-changing for you. Be on mission for God. Obey the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Here we see they must obey God rather than men. Notice what he goes on to say, though, in verse, 20, sorry, verse 30. The God of our fathers, as Peter's still talking, he raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. So yes, blood is on their hands here. God exalted him at his right hand as leader or prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And what is the matter of obedience here? To repent. Christ commands all people everywhere to repent. Maybe today you're in this room and a friend invited you to the BCM tonight. And you're wondering why you're sitting here listening to this guy. Well, I want to encourage you. Listen close to this text. Just like these men had heard the gospel and their lives have been changed, your life can be changed too. You see clearly here, he says God has exalted Jesus, his own son, fully God, fully man. He was killed at the hands of these religious leaders, but God raised him from the grave. And so what should be the response of all people? To repent. That means to change your mind. Say, hey, I was going this way. I'm changing my mind about that direction. And now I'm going that way. I was going toward the things of the world, but I'm changing my mind about that. I'm going toward Christ. I'm going toward God. I was living my life for me. No, but now I'm, I'm changing my mind about that. I'm going this way now. I'm following Christ fully. And so we see clearly here in this passage that the results of repentance is forgiveness of sins. You can be forgiven. In other words, that debt that you owe, that sin debt you owe to God can be completely wiped clean. And so we see further in this passage that, yes, they're witnesses. And the Holy Spirit lives within them. And now the, the reason why they have the Holy Spirit is because they were obedient to that command to repent. Now, hey, guess what? What's Peter trying to do here? If you obey this command too to repent, you can have the Holy Spirit as well. The Pharisees still need Christ. Now, we see things kind of change in this passage. This is where we get to our next scene, scene number two. And in scene number two here, we see the influence of Gamaliel. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Wow, pretty angry. Verse 34, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So what's he trying to do? Well, you guys killed Jesus, right? Well, just like these other leaders were killed, there's followers scattered. Look, nothing's going to come of it. He's, in some sense, just trying to say, let, let it, just let it take its course. He doesn't believe Jesus actually rose from the grave. So he says, look, let these guys be a little crazy, whatever. It'll go away eventually. That's his take. 
So verse 38, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But notice where he goes here. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So we see really clearly in this scene, Gamaliel, it seems he's praised for giving a a bit of sound wisdom here. Uh, But even as one commentator said in particular, I thought this was really helpful. He said, his teaching here is closer to fatalism than a truly biblical view of the way God works in the world and expects his people to respond to unfolding events. Because notice, Gamaliel's approach has nothing to do with actually assessing the claims of the apostles. What are the apostles claiming? Hey, the Messiah, the King of Israel, has risen from the grave. He's alive. You should repent and follow him. So in other words, the King of the Jews, the King of Israel, Jesus. But notice, there's nothing about that here. There's nothing about really assessing the claims of the eyewitnesses, of the apostles. It's really dismissive in a way. Now, um, notice though, really what we want to see happen, we would love to see him assess it. We want him to see repent, but Really, he, his approach is, look, let's just wait and see how things turn out. And that's not really an adequate form of guidance on things. It's really passive. And we as believers should be active on things. So he's not really handling it. But that's Gamaliel. That's his approach, and that's really what allows for some persecution to subside for a time. But look at the very end of this passage. I already read verse 40, but let's look at verse 40 to 42. This is the final scene. This is how it transitions away from Gamaliel and back to the apostles. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So another charge is given against them, a civil authority, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This reminds me of James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its perfect work. They may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God has a purpose in trials. And here, they walk away rejoicing that they could be beaten. Why? Because Christ was beaten. The name of Jesus, he suffered. And he, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's what Jesus even said in his Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who insult you, who persecute you for righteousness' sake. It's a blessing to be persecuted. Now, you shouldn't go out seeking it, like intentionally, Hey, I'm going to find a way to get persecuted right now. No, you don't do that. You just be faithful what God has called you to do. And if it comes, it comes. If it comes, it comes. In verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, maybe you didn't recognize this, and maybe I should have said this earlier, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know, when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is a title. It means the anointed one, the Messiah. So, for instance, if you're familiar with King David in the Old Testament, when Samuel the prophet went to go find the next king of Israel, and he went through all David's brothers, didn't find him, well, he finds David, and when he finds David, what does he do? He pours oil on his head and anoints his head with oil. And that's a sign of messiahship, okay, or being king of Israel. And so Jesus is called the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And they're going about saying, look, you know who the Christ is? The king? who we haven't had in a very long time, it's Jesus. And you're called to repent and believe in him. So they faithfully suffered for Christ, for the Christ, for for King Jesus. 
And really here, I think a way that this can apply to you guys today, this passage, is this, that it is a matter of obedience to be bold with the gospel, even risking punishment, persecution, or opposition of any kind. So if you're put on the spot in class and it somehow is associated with your faith, be bold. Let the professor insult you. Let the classmates laugh at you. Consider that, wow, that's great. I can suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Maybe if you're um, in Free Speech Alley, you know, and, and there's, there's different booths out there. Maybe you have a booth and you want to share the gospel with people there. And someone mocks your faith. Praise God that you could suffer for the name of Christ. Now, in a couple points of application, just I want to point out a couple other minor things. Notice envy was a big theme right in the beginning of this text. The envy of the Pharisees. You see, they were envious of the success of the apostles. And we can see where that envy led them. Their eyes were focused so much on the success of the apostles, they weren't actually focusing on the claims. And that led them astray, that sin of envy or covetousness in their own heart. But like Gamaliel pointed out, if this was all God-ordained, well, they would be found opposing God. So they shouldn't function the way they had been functioning. But still, in some sense, you can see they didn't listen. They still beat them and sent them on their way. So given the fact that we as Christians believe that God is sovereign or he rules over all things, um, there's a really good application here. The successes of others could be an opportunity for one of two things, to rejoice in trusting God or to be envious. Which are you? Do you choose to praise God when other people are successful, or do you get envious? I think that's a, a pointed application we can make for ourselves from this text today. What will you choose? I hope you choose to trust in the sovereignty of Christ, even in the success of others. And as it relates to the success of the apostles, I hope you're all joining me in that and joining one another and, and seeing people come to Christ. That's awesome. Now, another point of application I think is really helpful for us, even given our time, is this idea of sphere sovereignty. And what do I mean by that? Well, like I mentioned a moment ago, all authority is delegated by God. The authority of the church, the state, the family, and your individual self. Those are the four different spheres, we might say, of sovereignty. I rule myself. You guys are not responsible for setting my alarm every morning, right? I got to do that. I got to wake myself up, right? I got to rule myself. Also, you're not responsible for my family. I have a, a beautiful wife, three beautiful boys, and I'm responsible to them. That's the sphere of sovereignty God has given me to lead, right? Also, I'm a pastor. I get the privilege of being a pastor. And so that's a sphere of sovereignty which I get to lead in. But I'm not a government official. I'm not going to arrest you, <laughs> right? I, I don't have a pair of handcuffs to, to act for the government if you do something wrong. That's their job to do that, right? And so that's their sphere delegated by God. And so um, really the governing, um, whether in this text it's religious or civil authorities, they sought to go against the authority of the church, and against God. Why? They're telling them, you can't obey God by proclaiming the gospel. They're telling them that, and that's not okay. So they had to say, look, we must obey God rather than men. And I think in our time, it's really obvious, some obvious applications here. Uh, see, they considered, they were civil because of how they acted. Uh, the Romans could charge for crimes just like the Jews could here in, in their court of law, but nevertheless, the apostles did the right thing. But how did they do it? They were respectful and peaceful, and that's always key for a Christian. If you're not respectful and you're not peaceful as regards civil disobedience, that's not okay. That's actually sin. We've got to be respectful if we're going to choose to civilly disobey the government in any way, shape, or form. And so, um, you know, I would be remiss to avoid mentioning this application for us, but even regarding the COVID-19 pandemic, we were told by our governing authorities for churches to shut down our churches. It's understandable for the BCM because you're here at the LSU campus. But for a church, 
Every church did what they thought was right, including Woodlawn. You know, we were shut down until about Mother's Day. And after a while, upon thinking about it and the commands of Scripture, to gather, to gather, we knew that gathering as a church was essential. It was biblical. How could we stir one another up to love and good works? How could we preach the word and pray together if we weren't together? And so we saw that, yes, that's essential. And while we want to act in wisdom and we want to be healthy, we realized that we couldn't let fear drive us as the main thing. And we had to trust Christ and continue to obey him, even if it meant disobedience to the government. So um, we look at this, and we must realize that all authority is delegated by God. And we must be faithful to steward the authority God has given us. What authority has God given you? Maybe for some of you, yeah, you, you, most of you are just ruling your individual selves, and that's all you have to worry about. But some of you might be engaged or dating someone and on your way to being married. How do you handle that authority? Do you handle it joyfully? Do you handle that, in a, that opportunity in such a way to honor God? I hope you do. I hope you do. As we think about this passage tonight, I hope you will realize that no matter what happens, if you're faithful to honor God, God will protect you. And if it means your death one day, you know, Lord willing, you could live a long life and not suffer, we could say, some horrific death. But if you do, you're kind of worthy to honor Christ through, um, through martyrdom of some kind. But really, the whole purpose of all of our lives is to advance the gospel throughout the world. I hope you take that seriously tonight as you think about what the apostles went through. And I hope um, I didn't go over my time. I don't know if I did, Steve. Probably did. But um, I love you guys. I'm praying for you. And if there's anything I could ever do for you as a pastor at Woodlawn Baptist Church, uh, please let us know. Uh, we do a Bible study every Sunday night. Uh, we're going through the book of Revelation right now. Figured it was the end of the world. Why not? So, um, but uh, would love to have you guys come. And uh, if we could ever do anything for you. We're just another, one of many great churches in the area that would love to serve you in any way. Okay, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll continue. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time together. We pray that um, as I had the opportunity to preach your word, that, Lord, that uh, the word would do its work that I can't do. Your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So, God, we ask that you would work in such a way in each of these students' lives that they would love your word. If any student here is cold to your word, it's likely because they stepped away from its life-giving fire. We pray that the, the life of the word would just radiate from their, from their minds, their hearts, their lips, that each person in here would love you fully and truly, and that you continue their sanctifying path that you have them on, that no matter what may come in the future, that they would be faithful to obey you over all else. We love you, Jesus, and praise in your name. Amen.